morning, church. Um, so for our scripture reading this morning, we have a repeated verse, a repeated refrain um, that we would love for you to say out loud with us this morning as we read. Um, so as you look at the screen, when it's highlighted in yellow, please read that aloud with us. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 19. To the choir master, according to Lily's, a testimony of Asaph, a song. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that that we we may may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Lord, this morning, in view of your mercies, we offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing because of Christ of what he has done for us Lord I know that the flesh profits nothing but it is the spirit who gives life and so God we cast ourselves down this morning we don't need better advice today we don't need a word from the wisdom of man we need a word from you And so, Lord, as we submit to your word this morning, we pray that you would attend to it with power, that you would attend to it to rescue us, to save us, to draw us up out of our deadness, and to experience the life in Christ. Lord, we humbly bow before you now and ask that you would pierce our hearts with your word. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. may be seated. Hey, we've already read Psalm 80 together, but if you have your Bible, I want to go ahead and ask you to to turn there to Psalm 80. 
as we're going to be camped out there for most of the sermon today. So if you have a Bible, Psalm 80. Um, as I've owned now a few different uh, cars and even now a couple houses, um, I've learned that more and more uh, those types of responsibilities take constant upkeep uh, m- because most things in life eventually uh, decay, break down, and rot. The, the natural drift of things, of stuff in life is to fall apart. Uh, my in-laws used to own a condo in Sarasota, Florida, and they told me a story one time about their neighbor who had the, the next condo down. Uh, she was the kind of person that would only come in for a few months out of the year. Well, uh, one year during the months that she wasn't living in the condo or wasn't there, the, the air conditioner broke, and she didn't know about it. And so after a few months, uh, she came and she opened the door, and to her surprise, the, the whole condo was covered top to bottom in mold. And it took this intense process uh, to restore that condo back to where it was actually in livable conditions. What I've learned over the years is that both with churches and with Christians, uh, we are pretty much the same way. Even the most vigilant among us seem to just sort of drift down towards decay and rot. Uh, Even when we we give it our best shot, uh, most of us don't uh, completely bomb out. But we just sort of slowly drift away from God. And you know, it starts with maybe a relationship conflict in the church that, that keeps you away. Uh, maybe it's just a conflict of schedule, you know, that keeps you from gathering with Christians that you normally spend time with. You know, it's that project that uh, keeps you going in to work a little bit earlier and it keeps you staying at work a little bit later. You don't completely stop reading your Bible. You don't completely stop praying, but your time with God just starts to shrink more and more and more until all you have left is just sort of what you call a a power breakfast with God in the car. And then there's the commitments with the kids on the weekends that keeps you tied up. And, you know, one or two weekends turns into eight weekends, turns into 20 weekends. And then there's those just general discouragements in life that seem to just pop up. I mean, we've been living in a discouraging time. And then maybe you look up and realize that you've drifted, not just from church, not just from relationships, not just from your Bible, but you have drifted from from God. And getting back to where you were seems impossible. Getting back to where you felt like you had that relationship with God seems hopeless. Uh, Allie and I used to watch, uh, love watching this show, Fixer Upper. I'm sure many of y'all seen that. Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, they go in and they, they help these couples or help these people find a home. And some of the homes that they work with are just a little bit outdated, but some of them are just a complete, absolute wreck. And Chip and Joanna's job is to go in and to, to renovate, to revitalize uh, these homes. And what, what we call that in our spiritual lives and what we call that in our churches is revival. But I want to be really clear this morning. We're going to be talking about revival. I want to be really, really clear. We aren't the renovators. We aren't the restorers. We aren't the revivers. We are the broken down and dilapidated house. Revival is when God himself comes down and gives fresh life to his desperate people. When God pours out his spirit among us in a way that reforms us and revives us and restores us. 
so that the gospel surges forth with supernatural strength and power. And guys, guess what? We need revival. We can't cause revival. We can't schedule revival. But Psalm 80 is in the Bible because God wants us to plead with him for revival. And God wants us to prepare ourselves for revival. In Psalm 80, God's people have lost their sense of God. And they feel the lifelessness. They feel the joylessness of a life that's separated from him. And so they're crying out to God to come back, to return, and to turn them. Because they need God to fix what's broken. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at four things that we can do to prepare for revival. If you have the Bible there to Psalm 80, we're going to be working through it. Four things that we can do to prepare for revival. And the first is this. The first is that we get desperate for God. We get desperate for God. Uh, We're going to start this morning by looking at that chorus, that that refrain that you and I said together as we read through Psalm 80. That's where we're going to start today. Uh, The chorus is that part of the song that sort of summarizes everything. It pulls, it's the thread that ties everything together. And we saw it in verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19. So let me read verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So I just want to point out three things about the three parts of, of this verse uh, about why we should be desperate for God. And the first is this. This chorus is an acknowledgement that we need God to restore us. We can't fix this mess. We can't put ourselves back together. We might be telling ourselves, yeah, we'll get back to normal soon. But only God can actually fix us in a way that is actually fixed. Revival is a work of God. Uh, I've been using this house analogy a little bit, right? Uh, about, you know, the broken down house and all that. L- let's just switch the metaphor for a second. Let's talk about sports. In the sports world, when your team is having a bad year, what do you call that? You call it a rebuilding year. But then what happens when a rebuilding year turns into a rebuilding decade? You are just not good. (laughs) And something needs to change. Guys, in our spiritual lives, maybe it's time for us to get honest and, and genuinely say, we're actually not in a rebuilding phase. Maybe a year's gone by, maybe two years, maybe five, maybe 20 years have gone by. It's time for us to stop pretending like we can put ourselves back together. And it's time to start crying out for God to restore us. But secondly, this is what we see in this chorus, is that it is God himself who we really need. You know, if you were to walk around and actually make an assessment of what we need, if you were to kind of pretend like the church was this broken down house, and and you were an inspector who was going to come in, and you were going to assess all the things that were broken, all the things that needed to be fixed, what would you find? Well, I think you would find a church full of distracted people. You would find a church full of discouraged people. Uh, You would find uh, conflict, relational conflict that is unresolved. You would find joylessness. You would find selfishness. You would find entitlement. 
You would find a lack of clarity on the truth. But far and away, without a doubt, the saddest thing that we would find is we would find cold hearts toward God. Listen, there's lots and lots of passion towards us, right? How to protect us, how to guard our rights, how to speak our opinions, how to look out for our futures and our happiness. We have got lots and lots of heat towards us. But just a waning coldness towards God, towards his truth, towards his character, towards his plan, towards his glory. God isn't completely out of the picture. Don't get me wrong. But he's just an afterthought. He, he might be in our lives, but he certainly isn't at the center. And so what we need is not for God to make us great. What we need is God himself. That's why it says in the chorus over and over and over again in the psalm, let your face shine. That's what we need. We need God to fix us, and the way God fixes us is by giving us himself, by showing us who he really is. Uh, now, the final aspect of this chorus that I think I want to look at before we move on into the, the rest of the body of the psalm, it actually comes, I'm going to put it in the form of a question. Let me read the verse again, and then I'll ask you the question. Verse 3 says this, Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. So this is the question. Should Christians pray to be saved? Aren't we you know, already saved? Can we actually pray Psalm 80 and, and pray it? This way, God, save us. Can we pray that? Well, all over the Bible, salvation is talked about in three tenses. It talks about salvation as past tense. It talks about salvation as present tense. And it talks about salvation in future tense. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. Past tense salvation happens when someone puts their faith in Jesus they're declared righteous in Him, and they receive the Spirit of God, and they're born again. That's what the Bible means when it says you have been saved. But there's future tense salvation. Future tense salvation is what's going to happen one day when God finally pours out His wrath. He pours out His anger against all sin. But those who are hidden in Christ because of His death on the cross will be saved from that future wrath that is coming. That's future tense. That's what the Bible means when it says you will be saved. But here in Psalm 80, we're not talking about past tense salvation. We're not even talking about future tense salvation. We're talking about right now, present tense salvation. The New Testament gives us this category of present tense salvation because it isn't just deliverance from the penalty of sin or the future judgment that we need. We need something more than that. We need salvation in the present tense because right now, presently, there is sin in our lives. In Romans chapter 7, this is how the Apostle Paul expresses his own need. Maybe you're questioning, can, can a Christian pray like this? Do, do people in the New Testament pray like this? Well, here's the Apostle Paul. After explaining the difficulty that he has had in his own life, between wrestling between the spirit and the flesh, with wrestling between the indwelling sin in his life, he cries out and he says, 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you hear that? That's sweet Annie back there. Hey, Annie, I love you. Sweetie, I'm probably yelling too much. Paul's saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's right now. It's present. It's this need for God to rescue us now. And that's what the prayer for revival is. It's a genuine, honest, honest assessment. And this is the thing. Uh, in real life, we don't call someone healthy just because they have a heartbeat. Right? We have a whole category of something called rehab. Because we, when someone gets hurt or when someone goes through a trauma... We want them to get back to a place where they're actually functioning, where they're actually walking, where they're actually working the way a human being was supposed to work. And that's what God wants for us in our salvation. He doesn't just want us to have a pulse. He doesn't just want a, a church full of people who are lying in hospital beds with a little beep going off. No, he wants to restore us back to life, back to health, back to the image of his son, Jesus. And that's why right now Christians should and can pray, God, save us. Hmm. Okay, we got, we got to move on. So we can't cause revival, but the first thing we do to prepare for it is to get desperate for God, to get desperate for God. But secondly, the thing that we can do to prepare for revival is to get clear on God, to get clear on God. I want to read verses 1 and 2 again, and I want you to notice how this psalm describes who God is. So let's read it again. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. So in the midst of this cry for revival, we get a vision of who God is. God wants us to get clear on who he really is. Notice how on the one hand, uh, the vision of God is that of a shepherd. God is tender. God is caring. God is willing to lower himself and to get involved in our lives. But then in the same verse, in verse 1, in the same exact verse, God is also described as that of a king sitting, sitting high and holy above the angels. We are led to pray to the God who is enthroned upon the cherubim. He's the shepherd who cares for us. And he is the holy God who is separate and other. The real God is both. Uh, Allie and I have been watching this show alone recently. These survival experts are, are dropped out into the wild. And they're expected to try to, to just live as long as they can. It's, it's a really interesting show on the, the History Channel. There's just one episode recently that we watched... Uh, and this guy starts talking about how in his dream, he uh, felt like he was kissing his wife. And he, and he kind of describes it in some detail. And so he, he wakes up from his dream. And as he reaches up to his face, instead of finding his wife's lips, he finds a slug on his face. And he realizes that instead of kissing his wife, he had been kissing a slug. One of the reasons that we fall into decay, one of the reasons that we drift from God is because we exchange the real, true, and living God for a cheap substitute. 
Some of us now have drifted so far from the Lord that we think we're walking with God. We think we're praying to God. But we're really like that guy. We've really just, we've really fallen in love with the God of our imagination. In our slumber, we've lost sight of who God really is. So I want to talk through this shepherd and this king thing, this tender shepherd and this holy king thing for just a second. When we embrace God as shepherd, but not as king, we like a God who's nice. Uh, we like a God who never judges us or hold us, holds us accountable for anything. But if we like the shepherd God, but not the king God, then I have to tell you, your God has no power to save you. The little, this little puny God that we've created, who basically exists to make us feel better about ourselves, he cannot save anyone, and he's not the God of revival that we desperately need. But if we embrace God as holy king, but not as our shepherd, God is cold, hard, distant. He hates the world just as much as we do. He is unapproachable, and he rarely involved in our everyday lives. If we like the holy king God, but not the tender shepherd, then we must know that that God does not have enough love to save us. That God's lack of compassion for the world also means that he has a lack of compassion for us. But the real God, the God of revival, the, the God that we see here in Psalm 80 is the God of the gospel. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. There has never been a greater act of love than God sending his son to die for us. And yet, what we know is that what was happening on the cross, what was happening as the son of God was being offered up, is that hell was being poured out upon him for our sin. The real God, the only true real God, absolutely hates sin. And yet, he loves us so much that he was willing to send his son to die for us. The real Jesus is both the lamb and the lion. And that real God, who really does hate sin, and who really does love us more than we could imagine, that is the God of revival. Getting mental clarity has never brought about revival, but throughout all the revivals of the world, you can study whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, church history, you can study all the revivals of the world include a realigning on truth and especially the two truths of God's transcendent holiness and his unfathomable radical grace. They're always there in the midst of revival. So we can't cause revival, but one way we prepare for it is to get clear on God. Another way, thirdly, is that we get honest with God. So that we get honest with God. I want to read verses 4 through 6. And as I read it, I just want you to notice how the psalmist Asaph has such a high view of God's sovereignty. He's interpreting his world. He's interpreting their, the, the Israelites' community's experience through the lens of a big God who's completely in control of life. This is what it says in verses 4 through 6. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers 
You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. This psalm guides us to get really honest about our situation. This is not a prayer of people who've lost faith. This is a prayer of people who know that they are under the discipline of God. Uh, Back there on the wall, between the two bathrooms, we have an AED. And the point of an AED is to shock someone back to life. When God removes the sense of his presence from us, when God removes the peace that we have in our life, when God removes our sense of influence in the world, he is trying to shock us back to life. It's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us. He's a good father who wants to wake us up. So guys, let me just ask you, have you lost your sense of peace with God? Like it says there, he's angry with our prayers. Have you lost a sense of peace within yourself? Is your food the food of your tears? Have you lost a sense of peace with your neighbors? Do you feel like, as a Christian, you're constantly in the middle of the problem? When God removes all sense of peace, including the sense of his presence, he's trying to get us to wake up. He's trying to shock us back to life. See, maybe the problem, maybe the problem with the church in America isn't that the world is so bad. (laughs) Maybe the problem with the church in America is that we stopped taking God seriously. We stopped honestly surrendering, surrendering every area of our life to him. Maybe it's not just that there's all these big bad people out there, but maybe we need to repent. I want to look at this one area of prayer. Verse 4 specifically goes at prayer. Uh, last week, the whole sermon was on prayer. So if you want to think more about this and you weren't here with us last week, I would encourage you to go and check that out on the website. But I just want to still, I just want to dive in a little deeper today because this is a really striking thing. I want to read verse 4 again, and I just want you to honestly ask yourself if, if we even have a category for this. Verse 4 says, O Lord God of hosts, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Does that sound weird to you? Kind of sounds weird to me. But then what comes to my mind is James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, this is what James tells us. He says, you do not have because... You do not ask. So in other words, hey, here's one reason, here's one problem that's going on in in your lives that you don't pray. And if you don't pray, God doesn't give. He's connecting our praying to God's giving. But then he continues in verse 3, and this is what he says, and this is what I really want to touch base on. He says, you ask and do not receive. So in other words, you're praying, but God's not giving. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When the church is in a state of decline, one thing is certain, that it has become selfish. That we've gotten too busy with our dreams, our plans, our lives, our desires. We've gotten off of God's agenda, and we've started living according to our own 
agenda. And so here, here's what I want you to do. I, I, I know that in this church we have a lot of really courageous people. We have a lot of people that have done some really, really awesome things with your lives. Uh, you have changed the world, and it's, that's, it's just it's awesome to me. So I'm going to ask you to do something that takes a little bit of courage. Sometime, maybe today or this, this week, I want you to talk to somebody who knows you really well. And I want to, I want to encourage you to ask, ask them this question. I want you to ask them, hey, when you hear me pray, when you hear me talk about what I long for in the world, when you hear me express the deepest desires of my heart, do you hear me praying and longing and desiring selfish things? Or do you hear me praying and desiring and longing for the glory of God? Ask it, and then just listen. No, no justifications, no pushback, because this is why. We've got to get honest with ourselves so that we can genuinely see and feel how desperate we are for God. So I just want to encourage you, take that step, take, have the courage to ask somebody in your life that you trust, that you're close with, to help you evaluate your prayer life and your heart life. Getting honest with God won't manipulate revival, but it will bring us to a place where we're at least beginning to pray in ways that honor God and show Him how desperate we are for Him. The last way we prepare for revival, point four, finally, is we get serious about God. We get serious about God. At this point in the psalm, uh, we're going to turn now to reminisce. This is verses 8 through 13. I want to read it for you. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. So the psalm is reminding us of our redemption by telling us the story of Israel. God had came to Israel, and God brought Israel up out of Egypt. They were basically dead in Egypt. And God resurrected a people for himself. And he planted them. He paved a way in the wilderness. He cast out all the other nations. And then God made Israel. A, he took them from being a ragged group of sufferers. And he made them into a world superpower. He's reminding us of what Israel was. He's reminding us of what God did in their life. And so I wonder how that connects with you. You know, as I was thinking about a revival psalm, I was thinking about the desire for God to restore us. These are the kind of questions that started popping up in my mind. Do you remember when God made you alive? Do you remember when you came alive to God's word and you, you used to get so excited about the resurrection of Jesus and you were, you were so thrilled that God had sent his spirit into your life and you were so passionate about the mission of God? You, you felt so seriously about your sin. You're so sensitive to, to faith and whether you were trusting in God or not. Maybe you went on that mission trip and it was just awesome. And you loved God and you served and you gave to those people. And it just felt like you were on fire for Jesus. Do you remember the day you were baptized? 
how you felt about God, what it was like to be embraced into Jesus and by his people. Maybe you can remember the day that God just totally interrupted your life and Jesus was real to you. And it was like nothing in your life was the same and you were completely new. But now, somehow, our lives feel a lot more like verses 12 and 13. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that moves on it, on the field, feed on it. Drifted away, begun to decay, fallen away from the real God. Last spring, Allie and I, we had this little patch of, uh, I'm not sure that you can call it a garden, but it's something like a garden uh, in our backyard. And man, this thing had gotten nasty. I'm talking about weeds, waist high. Uh, when Allie finally drug me out there to get rid of them. I mean, we, I'm down there with hedge clippers having to clip these weeds. I mean, this is some serious stuff. Spend all day just, just pulling it all out. I mean, it's just feeling terrible, hot, sweaty. But then we put down some new soil and we planted some flowers and some azaleas. It was so, so beautiful. But guess what, guys? Weeds grow back. You know, I've got that picture of the finished product. I mean, it's a, I got a beautiful picture of my garden. But the problem with yard work is that the work's never done. And here's the sad thing. A sad thing in life is when you and I believe that the day we became a Christian, that we were a finished product. Guys, we won't be a finished product until the day we get to glory. And we will need God to come into our hearts and revive us again and again and again. So how do we become God's vibrant people again? How can we become a life-giving force in this world of death? Well, as we've seen throughout the psalm, it's two things. It's pleading and it's preparing. It's pleading and it's preparing. So let's read verses 14 to 17 again. It cries out, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the Son of Man whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man whom you've made strong for yourself. After telling the story of how God planted Israel like a vine, and then telling us that Israel isn't what she once was. Now the psalm turns us to plead with God to have regard for this vine again. So what does this prayer mean for us? What does this prayer for God to have regard for the vine mean for us? Well, it means two things. One, this is a prayer for revival. This is, a, this is us calling out to God and saying, God, we want you to come back to your people. But it also reminds us of Jesus Christ who was God's true vine sent into the world. He was the true son at the right hand whom God used to bring life back to a dead world. See, in John 15, this is what Jesus said. Notice how Jesus connects both the vine imagery and the son imagery that we see in Psalm 80. He says, I am the true vine, 
and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus was saying that he alone could bring life back to a dead world. That Jesus is God's true vine because only he could reunite God and man. Jesus is God's true vine because only he could absorb the death that we deserved. Jesus Christ is God's true vine because he is now and he will forever be a resurrected man. And Jesus Christ is God's true vine because it's only by union with him in faith that he gives us the Holy Spirit. And guys, the flesh profits nothing, but it is the Spirit who gives life. Jesus is the one true vine. He is the one who gives life. And maybe today, maybe, maybe you're here and you're realizing that revival isn't what you need because you've actually never been alive. Maybe restoration isn't actually the step for you today. Maybe the step for you today is to put your faith in Jesus, the one true vine who can give life back to this world. So I would pray that you would connect your life to his by faith today. Connect your life to becoming a co-heir with the son at the right hand. But real quick, back to, back to the psalm. I want to look at verse 18 because it's so powerful. Verse 18 says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. You know, as I process this week, um, this is kind of the hard realization that I've been hit with. I genuinely had to ask myself, if God revived his church and he poured himself out and it totally wrecked my nice little neat life, would I be excited about that? If God came and he just blew some stuff up and he thrilled my heart with the wonder of who he is and my nice little routines that I have and you know, my nice little church service that I have and my nice little ruts that I'm in, that they all just got completely exploded. And I had to adjust everything and I started becoming one of those weird people that people talk about, I don't even talk about Jesus. And like if I actually got passionate about God and it made me weird and awkward and changed my life and caused me trouble, would I choose that? And I think until we're ready to stop using God and to actually fall down before him and say, Lord, I want you for you. I want you because you've made me and you deserve all the honor and glory from my life. It's not about sprinkling fairy dust on my dreams anymore. It's about you being not only the God enthroned upon the cherubim, but the God enthroned upon me, upon my life. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. In other words, if he does it, if he pours it out, it's going to wreck everything for us. And that's what we need. We need him to come in. And not say, hey, well, yeah, let's change the color on the walls and, and maybe tweak it. I mean, we need this thing to just get. 
don't know if I'm ready for that or not. But man, I hope I am. My prayer is, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So I want to leave you with a vision today. Because if you noticed, as you guys read out loud Psalm 80, uh, those three times, maybe you noticed something. Maybe you noticed that the chorus, the refrain that we repeated, something was different about it each time. It was really, really similar, but something was different about it each time. Uh, The first time in verse 3, it said, Restore us, O God. The second time in verse 7, it said, Restore us, O God of hosts. And then in verse 19, the final time, it said, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. See, as we read the psalm together, as we've worked through the psalm together, God has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that really is true revival. That's what we need. And so I want to leave you with a vision of what this could be. Uh, You got in your seats there a bulletin. Uh, we, we put it out in every seat today because I printed something on there. And I want you to turn it open, and we're going to read something together. Uh, this is how Jonathan Edwards described his experience of revival in New England in the 18th century. And maybe you think, oh, that was a different world, that was a different time. And maybe you'll see, even as you read it, no, it actually wasn't. Uh, people were still just as sinful and just as wild and just as reckless and just as... Uh, just as unreal with God, but then God poured himself out. And this is what happened. It says, The hearts of multitudes have been greatly taken off from the things of the world, its profits, pleasures, and honors. Multitudes in all parts have had their consciences awakened and have been made sensible of the pernicious nature and consequences of sin and what a dreadful thing it is to be under guilt and the displeasure of God and to live without peace and reconciliation with him. They've also been awakened to a sense of the shortness and uncertainty of life and the reality of another world and future judgment and of the necessity of an interest in Christ. They are more afraid of sin, more careful and inquisitive that they may avoid it, and what he requires of them that they may do it, more careful to guard against temptations, more watchful over their own in the use of the means that God has appointed in his word in order to salvation Many very stupid, senseless sinners and persons of a vain mind have been greatly awakened. And now, instead of meetings at taverns and drinking houses and of young people in frolics and vain company, the country is full of meetings of all sorts and ages of persons, young and old, men and women and little children, to read and pray and sing praises and to converse of the things of God and of another world. In very many places, the main of the conversation in all the companies turns of religion and the things of a spiritual nature. Instead of vain amusements among young people, there is now either mourning under a sense of the guilt of sin or holy rejoicing in Christ Jesus. And instead of their lewd songs, there are now to be heard from them the songs of praise to God and the Lamb that was slain to redeem them by His blood. And there has been an alteration abiding on multitudes all over the land for a year and a half without any appearance of a disposition to return to former vice and vanity. Guys, who of us doesn't want that to happen in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? Who of us wouldn't be thrilled if the prevailing conversation in this city stopped being about COVID and football and how hard school, the school system is and started becoming about Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. How awesome would that be? Hey, we're planning. We're strategizing. We're working really hard. But only God can do this. And so let's, let's plead. 
Let's prepare. But then let's believe big thoughts of our big God. Because only He could accomplish this among us. Let's pray. O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. In Jesus' name.